As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene, was good? But be careful, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts, the medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class, a production of iHeartRadio. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Holly Fry. And I'm Tracy D. Wilson. Oh, Tracy. I sure have been in the dentist chair a lot lately. I know. <laughs> I don't mind it. Uh, I'll talk about this behind in our behind the scenes. I used to be terrified of the dentist. Now I'm totally good with it. I'll talk about my rehabilitation in this way. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, uh, and I'm fine. I've just had a lot of various things happening, getting some stuff caught up. And uh, I'm also doing some orthodontist stuff. So when one thing goes wrong... That I have to go to both. Yeah, <laughs> it all worked out. So during one of my visits, when I often sit and just kind of ruminate, uh, I found myself wondering if Ramses II would submit to modern dental care if he suddenly had access to it. Like everyone else, I have, you know, heard and read about how he had some serious tooth problems in his life. And then that got me thinking about like, yeah, but what did ancient Egyptians know about dentistry because I knew they were not like void of it mm -hmm. um, and it just made me want to look it up which is how a lot of our shows start <laughs> and, then, and then I did look it up when I got home and before you know it I was so deep in a dentistry rabbit hole <laughs> it wasn't even funny so we're doing a two-parter on dentistry and oral health this week here's the thing even with two parts this isn't comprehensive not even close because 
talking about a lot of stuff uh, and and world history and how different places have covered it. It does, as often is the case with our shows, uh, it starts to skew, particularly in the more modern eras, to more Western world dentistry because that's what we have most research uh, in a language that we can read available to us in. Uh, but... If you are a dentist, I hopefully did not leave out your favorite part or some development related to your specialty, but uh, please know that this was taking all of human history's relationship with their teeth, trying to find a balance of what's relatable information versus getting too deep in the weeds with medical specificity. Uh, So that's a little level set. Also, just as a heads up, in case you are one of those people who's squeamish about dental things, this is not an especially graphic discussion of dental stuff. We do talk a little bit about teeth and their wear, some things that might be painful. Uh, There is a little bit in today's episode about pulling that might make you squirm a little bit. It made me squirm a little bit, but I also had visuals to go with it. But overall, I would classify this as a pretty tame episode because I do get a little squirmy talking about dental stuff. So with all of that out of the way, the history of dentistry. (laughs) Like most things that have been around for centuries or even thousands of years, we don't have a clear sense of when somebody first tried to treat oral health issues with anything that might be considered a precursor to dentistry. We know from people's remains that early humans seem not to have had a lot of cavities, relatively speaking, but they did have a lot of other dental issues a lot of them being caused by intense wear on the teeth from grinding down foods. Uh, I think that has come up on Unearthed before, like the shift in tooth wear as people got better at cooking things. Uh, Prehistoric evidence suggests that it really wasn't uncommon for a person to grind their teeth all the way down to the pulp, which would have been incredibly painful. Gum disease was also fairly common. And dental remains have taught us a lot about social stratification of even very early societies. From the beginning, higher status or class usually meant better oral health, primarily because you would have had access to better quality food. Like what Tracy just referenced, things like cooking and figuring out how to prepare food the people at the top of the social strata were getting those benefits first, so they were not wearing their teeth down as quickly. But we still, though, only have pretty rough guesses at what the very earliest dental care and procedures were like. Presumably, though, natural remedies like numbing salves derived from flora might have been used for toothaches or gum aches. A diseased tooth might have been knocked out in ways that probably would have been fairly brutal, and likely deeply uncomfortable for the patient, but better than having a diseased tooth in your head. We do know that as early as 5000 BCE, there were efforts to treat toothaches among the Babylonians. There's a pretty significant gap in understanding about what was causing toothaches, and that would have hampered most of these efforts, because the Babylonians of the time believed that the primary things that made their teeth hurt were demons, and toothworms. According to the legend of the worm inscribed on a tablet from the period, the worm appears before Shamash, the god of the sun, and in an exchange where the worm asks what the god will give him to eat, it entreats, quote, let me insert myself in the inner of the tooth and give me his flesh for my dwelling. Out of the tooth I will suck his blood, and from the gum I will chew the marrow, so I have entrance to the tooth. 
toothworm infestations, according to this belief, can be treated with mashed herbs combined with gum mastic. Um, there is a an earlier episode of the podcast Sawbones that talks about some dentistry history. And one of, uh, I think Sydney, one of the hosts, makes the point that, like, when you see a cavity in somebody's tooth, it does kind of look like a little wormhole. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I can see where people got there. Um, But the problem, if you had a toothache, might have instead been a ghost or a demon, Tracy. (laughs) And if that was believed to be the case, the treatment was usually prayer or some sort of offering to appease the spirit that may have been wronged. That was why it was in your tooth, was to let you know that you had done something bad to it. Um, At this point, amulets were also used as a protective mechanism to shoo away demons that might cause tooth pain. Between 3000 and 4000 BCE, instructions for dental care were being recorded in the Vedas of ancient India. Medical texts from this group have detailed descriptions of oral anatomy and ways to care for and treat the teeth and the surrounding issues. And this includes possibly the earliest description of a toothbrush, In this case, a twig that's frayed at the end. Shashruta, who we have an episode on in the archives, included a list of 65 diseases of the mouth in his writing and recommended brushing your teeth early every morning with a cleaning paste made of honey and oil with other additives. The first person recognized as being a practitioner of dentistry was a man named Hezi Ray. You'll also see his name is Hezi Ra, sometimes all run together instead of hyphenated like those both were. He was an official in the court of Djoser in Egypt's third dynasty. We have an episode on Djoser in the archives, and Hezi Ray was clearly a man who had a lot of responsibilities. There's a panel from his tomb at Saqqara, which is carved in acacia wood, lists his various roles. King's confidant, priest in three different cults, supervisor of royal scribes, and chief of taxes. But the most important title in terms of his historical significance is chief of dentists and physicians. Now, you will also see different interpretations of that reference to dentistry, since that term would not have existed yet. Various translations include Great One of Ivories or even Cutter of Ivories and others. Uh, but regardless of translation, this oral health care obviously would be nothing like dentistry today. Worms and demons still blamed for those tooth issues. But this is important because it establishes a historical record of dental medicine as a distinct field or a specialty separate from just more general medicine. And because of this, Hezere is sometimes referred to as the first dentist. During Hezere's time, most treatments were aimed at alleviating pain and short-term fixes. Because periodontal disease was more common than cavities were, for example, there were various treatments that involved preparing poultices or packing materials around a patient's tooth to numb the pain that they might be experiencing and to stabilize the area. For some issues like abscesses, an oral rinse might be administered, but these are sometimes substances that would have actually been poisonous probably would have gotten rid of any bacteria, but also caused you harm, which happens in a few instances (laughs) in the history of dental care. In the centuries following Hezere's death, circa 2600 BCE, there were new techniques that were being developed for treating tooth decay, although toothworms were still taking the blame. 
Uh, One treatment approach, which I sort of love, was to try to smoke out the toothworms using henbane that had been incorporated into beeswax. It would be still several hundred more years before the Hammurabi Code, which is dated about 1750 BCE, would establish laws related to dental issues. This establishes the concept of medical malpractice and its punishment, and it also sets up laws regarding harming another person's teeth. If a free man were to have his tooth knocked out, the person who caused the injury would have one of their teeth knocked out in retribution, knocking out the tooth of an enslaved person uh, incurred a fine of silver. So we are about to get to the Ebers papyrus, but before we delve into that and a little aside about the man who started all of this, (laughs) Ramses II, we will pause for a sponsor break. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs, and if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean. I've last on the business. I understand now. It's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Is she breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. 
It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, Chief Marketing and Growth Officer at AT AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Ebers papyrus is one of the oldest of the medical papyri we know of, and it's considered incredibly important. Dated to the 16th century BCE, this papyrus got its name from Egyptologist George Ebers, who purchased the papyrus at Luxor in the 1870s. This scroll, which is believed to be a copy of an earlier document, is filled with information about how Egyptians treated various diseases and conditions. There are 11 remedies that could fall under the heading of dentistry, sometimes called the first known text to describe dentistry practices. Among them, there's packing teeth in a way that we mentioned a moment ago, using barley and honey. One entry intended to help regrow gum tissue is translated as, quote, another to expel eating on the gums and make the flesh grow. Cow's milk, fresh dates, manna, remains during the night in the dew, rinse the mouth for nine days. There are also descriptions of how medical professionals at the time would install kind of a primitive bridge using a hammer and gold or silver wire to lash the teeth together to support one another. And opium from poppies is recommended as a pain reliever. So as an aside on Ramses II and a bit of myth-busting related to what I talked to at the top of the episode, uh, it's long been reported, and there are certainly x-rays you can look at of his skull to show pretty clearly that he had a lot of almost certainly very painful dental issues going on by the time he died. But this is not a case where there was no dental care in his time. That's often how these issues are framed. Uh, He lived and ruled in the 13th century BCE, so after the treatments and recognition of dental medicine that we have mentioned up to this point. But the bottom line is that that dental care was just not advanced enough to keep up with the developing problem of a man in his 90s whose teeth had been ground down and whose gums were plagued with issues. Some of this, too, is just genetics, right? Two random people today can give their teeth the same exact level of care throughout their life and still have very different oral health for a variety of reasons. Uh, Preventative care in the form of a daily oral hygiene ritual was also already well established. This was not a case where this was a culture ignorant about keeping their teeth clean. Uh, That went back at least to the time of Hezirah and possibly even earlier. 
In ancient China, there was also a developed concept of dentistry. Early pharmacopias listing medicinally beneficial plants, including many that could have been used for dental health, are dated as far back as 2700 BCE. There may have even been earlier versions. These early texts share some of the same ideas we've discussed relating to early Egyptian dental ideas, most notably those pesky toothworms. Tooth pain and degradation are also attributed to the idea of humors being unbalanced, as well as other causes. To treat toothaches, according to early Chinese practitioners, you could chew on roasted garlic that had been combined with horseradish seeds and other ingredients, and then if that failed, a small dose of arsenic could be administered to the tooth. There was also the use of acupuncture to treat toothache, and that was already well-established in ancient texts. Hippocrates was born in 460 BCE, and his work and writing advanced dental medicine in a number of ways. For one, he wrote about the importance of separating medicine and medical practice from ideas of magic and religion. Up to his time, that idea of a spiritual component to health and illness had waxed and waned, but this idea of truly secular medicine was a pretty significant change. The writings of Hippocrates are also filled with information on dental care and oral health. He wrote what's possibly the first description of a dental operation was a tooth extraction using a tool called an odontogogon, and that was an early version of dental forceps. But though Hippocrates was really into some big advancements, he also thought that men had more teeth than women did, so his hands-on work on the matter might have been pretty lacking. Everybody actually gets 20 baby teeth and then 28 mature teeth plus four wisdom teeth. There can be some variations in that, but it is not based on sex. Uh, Although uh, not everyone's wisdom teeth come in. That's part of that variation. That does not appear to have anything to do, again, with sex, though. Right. Whether your wisdom teeth appear or not doesn't doesn't matter. (laughs) Yeah, one of our cats had an extra tooth and that was just random. (laughs) Right, that happened, that does happen to people, but again, doesn't, (laughs) this is, this is not a a sexual divide. (laughs) Um, Following Hippocrates, Aristotle was the next notable historical figure in the Western world to write about oral health. His writing, Departibus Animalium, describes the teeth of pigs in detail. Like Hippocrates, he still had that false belief in teeth counts being different based on sex. Y'all, look inside somebody's mouth. Look inside a bunch (laughs) of different mouths. You'll figure out you're wrong. Uh, But he did offer deeper understanding of how teeth fit into anatomy, including how the blood vessels of the nerves and roots of the teeth were connected to the larger circulatory system. Rome developed a lot more advanced dentistry in the centuries following the writings of Aristotle, This is where we first see crowns made of gold and replacement teeth that resembled natural teeth carved from materials like ivory and boxwood. This also marked a time when there were several different professions that could treat tooth and gum issues. Some doctors specialized in dentistry, but you could also go to a tooth drawer if you just needed one to be pulled out. Though things were advancing, though, there were also still some pretty misguided practices like Urine was believed to be a good mouthwash. Yuckers. Gross. The first- <laughs> there are many, many great uses of urine in history, and that, in my opinion, is not one. Not so much. 
The first filling that we know of is attributed to the work of physician Alice Cornelius Celsus, who wrote extensively about teeth and dentistry. His fillings, which were made primarily of lead, were not intended to save the tooth like a filling that you would have today, but instead just to bolster it and give it a little more um, steadiness so he could get a grip on it and pull it. He did advocate for patience in that he truly believed that pain from maladies like tooth abscesses, that was some of the worst pain a person could experience, in his opinion. And pain relief, he thought, should be a goal for anyone practicing oral medicine. He also recognized that oral health was a good indicator of overall health. But right alongside that move forward were some of the more cockamamie ideas. It was not until the first century CE that the idea of tooth worms appears in Roman texts. That's when physician Scribonius Largus includes it in a medical formulary. This description also includes a remedy, which is burning henbane and inhaling the fumes. The ash left behind when you burn henbane seed buns looks a little bit like worms, and so that was offered as proof that the worms had been extracted. In the words of writer James Winbrandt, who wrote The Excruciating History of Dentistry, quote, not coincidentally, henbane is a narcotic. (laughs) Yes, people were easily convinced that their worms had been extracted uh, because they were high. Pliny's writing is also filled with incorrect information regarding the teeth and gums, mostly, it seems, drawn from superstitions. He wrote that teeth contained a poisonous substance that could kill birds, that there was a worm you could rub on your teeth to treat toothache, yuck, and that scratching painful gums with a tooth obtained from a person who had died violently would alleviate discomfort. Just throw all of that right out. Sounds like a setup for a murder mystery. As the first century came to a close, Syrian physician Archigenes, practicing in Rome, made the connection that toothaches were caused by damage or disease to the interior of the tooth. And that led him to perform treatments that could sort of be considered precursors to root canals. He opened diseased teeth with a saw to release the so-called morbid humors. So we have spoken on this show before about Britain's and France's barber surgeons, most recently in our episode about Amboise Paré. So to recap, by the 1300s, barber surgeons in both countries were performing tooth extractions as well as other medical procedures. This was a result of many of those tasks having been forbidden to be done by monks by the Catholic Church. That had been common practice to go to a monk for such things before the 1100s. And then there was tension between these practitioners, these barber surgeons, and medical surgeons. This led to the two professions eventually being more clearly regulated and defined. And most of the procedures that barber surgeons were performing were then delineated as the work of medical surgeons. However, tooth extractions were one of the exceptions. This is why you'll often see dentistry referred to as an evolution of the barber surgeon trade. The little medicinal book for all kinds of diseases and infirmities of the teeth is sometimes referred to as the first dedicated book of dentistry. It was written by German physician Arzny Buchlein in 1530. This book is meant as a manual for barber surgeons, and it's quite comprehensive. There are 13 chapters covering everything from how the teeth grow to the various issues of decay, impaction, and periodontal disease. 
He also includes sections on children's teeth and finishes with a section on how to retain good teeth. A lot of this work is really an updated aggregation of the work of previous practitioners, so not brand new information. But it's the first time all of that knowledge was collected together in a sort of a textbook. And included were instructions for procedures like drilling the teeth and applying gold fillings. Yeah, still some incorrect info, but uh, the most comprehensive book about it, (laughs) Uh, collection of that information that had happened up to that point. And this book was incredibly popular as a consequence. Six editions of it were printed between 1530 and 1543. In 1546, it was reprinted again, but at that point it became a chapter in a larger work titled The Medicinal Book for All Kinds of Diseases of the Whole Body, Internal and External from Head to Toe. This book had 12 other chapters, which had previously been separate booklets, all of which had been written by Artsny Buchlein. Coming up, we'll talk about a problem that has plagued the dentistry trade and humans who need dental care for a long time, but it is not a disease that is other humans. We'll talk about that after we hear from the sponsors who keep Stuff You Missed in History Class going. I'm Tracy V. Wilson from Stuff You Missed in History Class. Did you know small businesses make up 99.9% of all businesses in the United States? The world is powered by entrepreneurs. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. And every episode hosts Austin Hankwitz and Janice Torres talk to entrepreneurs about how they've grown from the lessons of launching and nurturing a small business, and how they have found success being their own boss. From the excitement of first starting out to finding the right tools and resources to process invoices and payments like QuickBooks Money, you won't want to miss these inspiring stories of entrepreneurship and discovering ways to business differently so you can too. And if you're a small business owner or even someone dreaming of starting your own business, then you'll want to check out Season 2 of Mind the Business, small business success stories from Ruby Studio, from iHeartMedia, and Intuit QuickBooks. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Eugene Fodor! Gene, we'll boot it! Much of the joy you will find on the road comes from the person you share it with. So you write the books, Jean, and Vlastor on the business. I understand now. He's a wise man who marries a wiser woman. But be careful and choose your travel partner well, because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. Get down! I'm not stupid, Jean. Something is going on, and it's high time you tell me the truth. Freeze, Americano! Huh? Oh! Jean! Run! So travel before it's too late. Your money will return. Your time won't. And we're all too quickly approaching that final destination. Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there. I'm Bob Pittman, chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season remind us to embrace change and fearlessly look toward the future. Like Andrew Jarecki, award-winning filmmaker and creator of Movie Phone. The studios didn't really control the theaters. The theaters didn't control the studios. 
And I thought, well, there's a window in here where I could make things easier for the consumer and also make something that would be very useful for the industry. Or Kellen Kenny, chief marketing and growth officer at AT&T, who installed fiber in customers' houses rather than leading from afar. It is so crucial that you spend time with the customers. That is the best lesson. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark, more than ever. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Unfortunately, although advancements were certainly being made in the medieval period and certainly into the Renaissance, this was also a time when completely untrained people started to claim to be experts in tooth drawing or tooth extraction. They would often travel from place to place, setting up shop just long enough to pull some teeth and make some quick money before moving on. Although there there may have been and probably were a few earnest practitioners in the mix, a lot of this so-called profession was a ruse. While the tooth drawer was keeping a patient busy, sometimes with completely incorrect care, sometimes even pulling the wrong tooth, an accomplice was likely rifling through the patient's personal effects. This was a problem throughout the 16th and 17th centuries and even into the 18th. The rise in quackery caused both an enormous fear of dental medicine among laypeople because there was no pain management, but it also led to intense distrust, even though true barber surgeons were theoretically much better prepared than these itinerant pullers. The only real records we have about these tooth drawers comes from artwork. There are a lot of European paintings from this era that show them. For example, there's Jan Steen's 1651 painting, The Tooth Puller. This features a boy having a tooth pulled in what looks like a market, and there are spectators all around. There's a document on the table that's visible as the license, but it's shown as a fake with a comically large seal. This boy looks miserable, and the children and adults who are crowded around show a mix of kind of cheerful fascination to dismay. A slightly older painting titled The Tooth Extraction, or sometimes The Tooth Puller, is attributed to Caravaggio around 1608. 
This one shows a man at a table with the puller standing behind and over him with a pair of pliers in his mouth and what looks like blood is trickling from the patient's mouth. Five men around the table are just looking on intensely. Yeah, that um, that second painting is especially striking to me because the the practitioner, the tooth drawer, tooth puller, is staring directly at the viewer, and it's just a little bit creepy. <laughs> um, in 1723, the book that is recognized as the start of the modern dentistry trade was published. That was Le Chirurgien Dentiste, The Surgeon Dentist. French surgeon Pierre Fauchard wrote it, and it established a lot of the basics that still form the foundations of dentistry. He recognized that a person's dental health impacted their overall health, and his book includes a comprehensive system for caring for healthy teeth, repairing damaged teeth, extracting teeth that were determined to be beyond repair, and treating gum disease. Since the father of modern dentistry is French, it makes sense that the word dentist comes from the French word dentiste. The word dent means tooth. So he's a toothist. (laughs) Fauchard was an outspoken person when it came to untrained and unlicensed people making their living as tooth pullers, and so he sought to warn people about those kinds of charlatans so they could seek out qualified healthcare providers instead. He had pondered for quite some time about why anybody would choose to have such a person see to their teeth, and he wrote that he had figured out their system. Quote, all their cleverness consists in getting hold of some unfortunates who push themselves among the people listening to the promises of the empiric. These pretend paid sufferers come up from time to time to the operator who holds in his hand a tooth already wrapped in a very fine skin with the blood of a chicken or some other animal, introduces his hand into the mouth of the pretended sufferer, drops into it the tooth hidden in his hand. Fauchard then described how the tooth drawer would do some delicate move and the paid faker would spit out the tooth and the blood, making this whole procedure look very easy and quick and painless. Naturally, then people would line up for such a really easy procedure only to learn that what was going to happen was really painful and sometimes dangerous. So we're coming up to a part that is fairly tame, uh, depending on your level of comfort of such things. It certainly made me squirm. Uh, Fauchard had become a dental specialist in Paris after learning the fundamentals of dentistry in the King's Navy. And he wrote extensively about his dental tools and how they were used. The five he specified for dental use for the gum lancet, the punch, pincers, the lever, and the one that he described as the most useful, the pelican. The pelican, named because it sort of resembles a pelican's beak, was invented centuries earlier by Guy de Choliac, and to me it looks utterly terrifying. Uh, It used a lever to remove a tooth. It had a hooked claw-shaped leg that went over the tooth and another that would push against the gum, and so they would pull this lever and the tooth would kind of get pulled out sideways. Fauchard noted in his writings that if someone did not know how to use it, the pelican, quote, is the most dangerous of all instruments for drawing teeth. The first dentist known in the European colonies in North America arrived in the 1760s. His name was John Baker. And after getting an education in Britain and Ireland, he left to set up to practice in the colonies. He started out in Boston, but we don't know a whole lot about his time there. 
What we do know is that in 1767, he decided to move to New York. And we know that because he placed a notice in the Boston Evening Post to let his patients know he was moving on, but they could continue to purchase his dentifrice, which was an early tooth cleaner at a local shop. He also trained an apprentice who we'll talk about in just a moment. Baker moved around quite a bit, it seems. He can be traced largely through similar postings in papers in each city as he moved on. We also get a sense of how established many of the services we might receive from a dentist today were already in place through his newspaper ads. For example, in one advertisement in 1771, he touted that he could cure scurvy in the dumbs, starting with a scaling of the teeth, maintain teeth to keep them white and beautiful, administer fillings, transplant teeth from one person to another, make artificial teeth, and lastly, he, quote, displaces teeth and stumps after the best and easiest methods, be they ever so deep, sunk into the socket of the gums. You've probably heard the myth that George Washington had a set of wooden dentures, and he did have false teeth, but they were not wood. Dr. John Baker made them originally out of ivory. They were wired to Washington's healthy-ish remaining teeth. That was before the Revolutionary War, though. Washington had other dentists make replacement teeth in later years. Some of his dentures were his own teeth that had been pulled. Some of them may have been bought from people he enslaved. Yes, Um, But the first president of the United States is not the only notable figure in U.S. history whose life brushed up against John Baker. Paul Revere also knew the dentist, but not because he was a patient. It was because Baker trained Paul Revere in dentistry. This happened when Baker was in Boston. The intent was that he would not leave his patients without dental care and that Paul Revere would replace him in his practice. The first ad placed by Revere offering such services appeared in 1786 in the Boston News Letter. And after noting that lots of people lose teeth in a variety of ways, this notice reads, quote, This is to inform all such that they may have them replaced with artificial ones that looks as well as the natural by Paul Revere Goldsmith near the head of Dr. Clark's Wharf, Boston. That notice goes on to say that if you already got some false teeth from Mr. John Baker, Paul Revere was trained by him and he will refasten those as they naturally loosen over time. Revere practiced dentistry until 1774, and then he moved on to exclusively making appliances like bridges or dentures. General Joseph Warren died at the Battle of Bunker Hill, and when he was disinterred from the battlefield to give him a more permanent and appropriate burial... Revere identified the body by that bridge work that he had provided to Warren. This was the first known instance of a post-mortem identification through someone's dental information. In yet another connection to George Washington in dental history, it was one of his later dentists, John Greenwood, who invented the first known dental foot engine. This was a machine that had a treadle taken from his mother's spinning wheel, so that the dentist could power the rotation of his drill by rocking his foot to and fro on that treadle. Greenwood was Washington's favorite dentist. We know this because the president wrote him a letter saying so in 1799. Greenwood at that point had made three full sets of dentures for Washington and two partial sets. Had Washington not died at the end of that year, it seems a certainty that Greenwood probably would have continued to be his dentist. 
The first dental text published in the U.S. was a treatise on the human teeth, concisely explaining their structure and cause of decay, to which is added the most beneficial and effectual method of treating all disorders incidental to the teeth and gums, with directions for their judicious extraction and proper mode of preservation, interspersed with observations interesting to and worthy the attention of every individual That text was published in 1801. Although the title was lengthy, the book was not. It was only 68 pages. Many of those pages were devoted to touting what an amazing dentist its author, Roger Cortland Skinner, was. This also laid out some basic information on dental hygiene, and it set the stage for similar works to publish, which was really the primary way that that kind of information was circulating at the time. So now that we're getting a more casual public education in dental health care, this is where we're going to end part one. But there is, of course, a lot more to discuss. And next time we are going to get into things like dental chairs and there's a big old drama that happens with amalgam. Dun, 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 dun. Um, <laughs> now that we have talked about how people did not eat refined sugar in ancient civilizations and thus had less tooth decay, let's talk about something sugary in our listener mail. <laughs> let's do it! <laughs> uh, and that is pie, which is uh, with an exclamation point because that is how listener Kelly titled her email. Kelly writes, Hello, Holly and Tracy. I just finished your podcast about pie and I found it to be absolutely delightful. We are huge pie fans in this house, but I wasn't always one myself. Before marrying my spouse, I rarely ate pie. Afterwards, it's pie at every gathering. My mother-in-law is a pie wizard and often makes cherry, strawberry, and many fruit-slash-cream variations for every holiday and gathering. I'm inherently impatient, so without my food processor, creating a pie crust is absolutely impossible. I also was surprised to know that my pie preference is more aligned with the British version of apple pie. My favorite pie in this world is an apple crumb pie. I find the buttery pie crust, the soft succulent apples, and crunchy top to be incredibly divine. It took many years of reading many cookbooks for me to figure out the best combination of the apple filling. As it turns out, I use cinnamon, cloves, and nutmeg in my pie filling. I often have a habit of buying more green apples than I can physically eat, so I make this pie pretty often. Your episode inspired me to check to see how many apples I had collected, and sure enough, I had enough to make a pie. Listening to this podcast while physically making a pie was a delight. I felt refreshed, and I got a delicious pie to eat at the end. Uh, Kelly also sent recipes uh, so we could make her pie. Delicious. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I love this. I love the idea of making a pie while listening to the history of pie. I'm suddenly wondering, uh, I had never asked you and meant to in the behind the scenes, Tracy. Do you ever put cheddar cheese on your apple pie? I've never tried that, I don't think. It's something my dad has always done, and I, when I was a kid, thought it was a little odd, but then I tried it, and it's delicious, and I have since met other people that do the same, so I'm wondering if that's like a regional thing. Yeah, I don't know. I don't eat enough apple pie, really, to think about it. I don't either, but uh, I recommend it when you let's all make a pie and try it. See how we, we can do A B testing. Uh, maybe we will use. Actually, I would not use this pie recipe because it has that beautiful uh, crunchy top, which doesn't work as well oh, as yeah, like sure. a covered pie. Mm-hmm. Then you don't want to ruin that. That stuff is delicious. Um, so, <laughs> so if you are making a pie, 
That sounds great. If you want to send us more pie recipes, I'm always collecting and I love them. So uh, please do so. You can do that at uh, historypodcast at iheartradio.com. You can also find us on social media as Missed in History. If you haven't yet subscribed to the podcast, that is easy as pie. You can do that on the iHeartRadio app or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Stuff You Missed in History Class is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. As important as choosing the right destination when traveling is choosing the right travel partner. Gene! Gene Fodor! Gene was wounded! But be careful. Because the worst trips result when two partners have two different agendas. The CIA really need your help, Gene. Freeze, Americano! Gene, run! Listen to Fodor's Guide to Espionage on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. From iHeart Podcasts. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. Breathing right now? Yes, she's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. A story about money, power, and corruption. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. I'm Paul Pringle, an investigative reporter for the LA Times. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. I'm excited to announce a new season of my podcast, Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. Our guests this season show us big risk can yield big rewards, like Rob Riley, the creative head of one of the world's leading advertising firms. I try to create environments where anybody can say anything without any judgment. Listen to a brand new season of Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast or wherever you get your podcast. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now, this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.